Good evening, and once again, happy Lord's Day to you all. As you're turning with me in your copies of the Word of God to Numbers chapter 14, I want to call to your mind a familiar quote before we look at our text. J.C. Ryle says, Guard your heart, guard your thoughts, and there will be little fear about your actions. Of course, playing on the proverb about guarding your hearts. Unfortunately, as we've looked at the last few chapters of Numbers, this pattern has not been heeded by the Israelites. They have let their thought life slip into one of unbelief, and now their actions, as we'll see tonight, are following. Um, I think a clever way of describing it is how um, Ian Duguid puts it in a commentary that we've been looking at. He calls chapters 13 which, uh, and 14, 13 of course, Christian looked at last week for us, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Quite the turn of fr- phrase there. And we'll see just how close to victory Israel was tonight. And alas, because of their sin of unbelief, they will receive nothing but defeat. So let's go ahead and read the entirety of the chapter and then we'll pray and look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, Numbers reads, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, 
Then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that He swore to give to them that He has killed them in this wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be as great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of, God, of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have yet put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land in which we went, in which, into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. By the way, to the Red Sea, excuse me. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except... Caleb the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness." According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all the, this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die." And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by a plague before the Lord. Of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up, up to the place that the Lord has promised. 
for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormoth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are humbled and grateful for this opportunity to come again to study Your Word on this Lord's Day. Thank You, Father, for the breath that You've given us, Lord, the blood that pumps within our veins to come and to gather here together. It is only by Your sustaining hand that we live and breathe. Father, as we look at this text tonight, seeing the great deal of rebellion and sin within the camp of Israel, help us not to forget that save for Your grace, we go likewise. Help us to heed this warning and to honor You as Lord and Savior. Not to presume upon Your grace, but to accept it fully by faith which You have imparted to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help me as I try to teach from Your Word tonight. May the Spirit lead every thought and word that I say. I am in utter dependence upon You, Lord. Go with us all now as we try to worship You through the hearing of Your preached Word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go ahead and return back to the first verse, now having read the entirety of the chapter. We were left with a bit of a cliffhanger last week where Christian showed us that the spies had been sent out, they were obedient to go as the Lord, had been command, as the Lord commanded Moses to send them into the land of Canaan to spy it out and return with the report for the people. And of course, that report for the great majority of the congregation of the Israelites was less than savory. They, they, much like ten of the twelve spies, as we saw, were fearful and distrusting, unbelieving that they would be able to conquer the peoples within the land. They saw giants and Nephilim, strong armies, and they just thought that the adversary was too great to overcome. And of course, in their own strength, they would certainly be correct. But, if you'll recall again, Caleb, in chapter 13, tried to remind the people of the Lord's promise. He was trying to remind them that they were not alone and that the Lord, who is faithful to keep His promises, had promised to deliver the land out of the hands of the Canaanites and into the hands of the Israelites. And so we were left not knowing whether Caleb's plea would quite be enough to overcome the the mass. And we see very quickly into chapter 14 that unfortunately for them, it was not. It says that all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And then in verse 2, they go on grumbling against the Lord's appointed leaders and by extension, the Lord Himself. The whole congregation 
said to them, and this is, I hope, going to sound familiar to you if you were with us for chapter 11, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So much like in the first account of rebellion on the behalf of these people, the Israelites were putting on their rose-colored glasses and recalling Egypt as a place of safety and security when in fact they were in bondage there. And the Lord had been kind and gracious in delivering them out of that and leading them on the way to the promised land which He had of course promised to Abraham. Now, this complaint is no different in many ways than that in that they were completely unfounded. The claims were unfounded about the land. And thus, we see again this idea that sin corrupts the mind. It corrupts the um, reasoning faculties within our minds. It makes us long for the world. It makes us long for the things that will destroy us and have destroyed us time and again over God's good promises and desires for us. They're longing to die. They're longing to die either in Egypt or in the wilderness, which is completely ridiculous, as we will soon see. What's more than that, they question the character of God, suggesting in these complaints that He somehow has been twisted enough to send them, instead of dying in the wilderness or in Egypt, to fall by the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites, those peoples living within Canaan. Of course, this is not true. And they say that instead of blessing the people, that they would instead turn the children and the women into a prey for these people. Now, in verse 4, they want to choose a new leader and go back to Christ. I won't touch on it too much tonight, But very briefly, I do want to show you that um, Moses, of course, as you all will, I hope, recognize, is a type of Christ. We'll see that in a couple ways tonight. The first one here is uh, shown in that they rejected Moses. Moses has been rejected much like, uh, by the people of God, much like Christ was rejected by the Israelites when he came. May we not reject Christ We have been sent a Savior, and as we'll see, an intercessor here later who has been ordained by God to come and fulfill what we could not. And we do well to accept Him by the grace of God. As we go on, we see that in verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Now, this, there, in the commentaries that I read, there was um, a little bit of some debate as to what this meant. It could either mean that Moses and Aaron were falling, asking for mercy before the congregation, from the congregation, that they would spare them and not um, kill them or elect new leaders. Or it could be, and this is the 
where I would fall on my understanding of this passage, that they were falling on behalf of the congregation before the Lord. Because we don't see here Moses and Aaron ever requesting mercy for themselves. Rather, as we'll see in Moses' intercessory prayer, he's interceding on behalf of the people of Israel before the Lord. They fall prostrate before God on behalf of their people, as if to say, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In verse 6, we see that Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that were faithful and trusting in the Lord, are greatly distressed as they tear their clothes in, in that outward sign. And they're pleading with the Israelites to obey God and to trust His promises. They aren't telling them anything new either. They've brought in this, uh, as they talk about the, the land of flowing with milk and honey, they had brought in in chapter 13 the giant bushel of grapes representing the overflow, the abundance within the land. At, just as God has promised, they're simply reminding them of the promises of God. We often forget the promises of God as well, and we do well to repent of that. They were rebelling and failing to trust God even though God had promised to deliver the land to them. Notice also in this verse, in these verses, that the Lord is judging the thoughts and motives of these people. They haven't yet elected a new leader. They haven't yet turned back to Egypt. But just as we see in the New Testament, and I'll turn there, the sin is not a matter of the outward working, but rather a matter of the heart. I'll recall again that the idea of guarding your heart to prevent against these sinful actions. So if we look in the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount, teaching on lust, Jesus Himself says, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, the Lord judges the heart. The Lord knows our hearts better than we do. Guard your heart. Rely on the Holy Spirit to correct us and rebuke us and repent where we see the need for our sinful hearts. Also in Matthew, we, need, uh, we see, and as, Cain, as um, Caleb is calling to the Israelites, in Matthew 10.28 we're told to fear the one, not the one who can kill the body, but rather fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That is similar to what um, Caleb is calling out to this people here, where he says, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land in verse 9, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. He's asking them to trust the Lord, to have a holy reverence for His character and His nature, His good, honest nature, and not to fear the people instead. And so, with that plea, what do the people do? Do they turn and accept that? Do they accept that reminder? Of course not. 
as we read in verse 10, the congregation said to stone them with stones. They're so angry that they, see, they plot to murder Caleb and Joshua and presumably Aaron and Moses potentially and turn around and go back to Egypt. But by the grace of God, he intercedes at the end of verse 10 and appears at the tent of meeting to all the people. And here we see what the Lord intends to do to this wicked people because of their rebellion. It says in verse 11, How long, the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater greater and mightier than they. In these verses, we see an interesting thought where God is just, yet He will still be faithful to His promise, even in this plan that He tells to Moses. He tells Moses that He plans to eradicate all the people, right? All the unfaithful, the, the congregation there. He wants to just wipe them out and start over with Moses. And the Lord would have been perfectly just in this. He could have judged them for their sin of unbelief and rebellion while not forsaking his half of the covenant with the people. He would have raised up a new people and still delivered the land that he had promised to Abraham. Now, in response to that, we see Moses interceding for the people. Keep in mind, this is the people that had rebelled against God had rebelled against Moses himself, had, select, uh, had thought and reasoned and um, considered electing a new leader and returning back to Egypt and leaving Moses in the wilderness. The one that, this is the people that have rebelled against him much as we have rebelled against God. And still, we have a great intercessor in Christ Jesus. So, in these verses, we see we have a lot of great detail about this intercessory prayer. In verses 13 through 16, we see that Moses is concerned with God's character. He's concerned about how the nations, which the Israelites are supposed to be this uh, representative nation on, uh, before, are going to perceive this act. They won't perceive it right as as just, they will perceive God falsely as a weak God. Similarly to how, um, ironically enough, the Israelites themselves are perceiving God as being too weak to overcome this people. And so, in verse 13 and 14, Moses is calling back very similar language to how he interceded in the golden calf incident in Exodus. In Exodus 34, Moses is petitioning before the Lord using the same argument. Um, And if you're familiar with that Exodus account, as I hope you are, um, you'll know that. God has delivered the people and they build the golden calf and God seeks to eradicate them. And Moses pleads with him, Uh, concern about God's own glory in that act. And so the Lord relinquishes and he agrees, but we see 
later, we see in this prayer that it is um, not only is Moses recalling what he himself has said, but he's calling back the very own words of God from that um, account in Exodus 34. Quoting from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Moses recalls to himself, and you'll see this uh, where you have the quotes in your Bibles. Uh, the Lord is quoting, or I mean, excuse me, Moses is quoting the Lord back to himself. That the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. How is this possible? How is this not a contradictory explanation of who God is? How can God be both merciful and just? Of course, we know that answer. We know that through Christ, He is able to be both just and the justifier. God cannot let sin go unpunished. There must be a blood atonement made for it. And we, in ourselves, being fallen, are unable to pay that on our, by ourselves. And so God, in His great loving kindness, sent His Son to live the perfect life for us, to die on the cross so that God could be just and that Christ's perfect righteousness could be imputed to us, making God also merciful simultaneously. And because of that, because of God's justice and His mercy, Moses is then able to plead the pardon uh, in verse 19 where he says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to what? According to when they were good in the first ten chapters of Numbers? According to the fact that I'm leading them and I haven't really done anything too terrible? I'm not the one rebelling against you? No, according to God's own character. His, the greatness of His steadfast love as He has forgiven them already from Egypt until now. And so, how does the Lord respond? He says in verse 20 that He is pardoned according to Moses' word. Now, just as a quick note here, of course, this is not to suggest that Moses has some supernatural power to change the mind of God or that God is changing, for He is not. But we see in this account that the Lord justifies the ends as well as the means. This intercessory prayer was ordained by God and the Lord used it and has recorded it in His eternal account through His Word to reveal to us some, something about His nature. In verse 21, I, I love this verse, but truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not yet obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. In verse 21, the Lord is calling to account again, promising on His own name promising on the most true thing that there is, that the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. All glory belongs to God. 
And so, the Lord pardons. He is gracious not to wipe out all of the people. But, He still is just in judging the congregation that rebelled and disbelieved. We see that none of the men who have seen My glory and My signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put Me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed My voice, shall see the land. God here is saying that um, He will not pardon those that are guilty. And we know that to be true. Yet, what is it they've done? It is that they have not obeyed My voice that they are being judged for. They haven't obeyed God. They haven't, in spite of seeing all the signs that He has done, they have not believed in Him. They have not trusted His perfect character and promises. Quick note on uh, verse 22 about this phrase, ten times. If you look, we won't have time to get into all the ten accounts. Um, there's a couple perspectives on this too. This, refer- this ten times could be language similar to like we have in the English saying dozens of something. It's, it's kind of a figure of speech. Or the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, actually recalls ten separate accounts where the Lord showed signs and the people were unbelieving. We've already seen a few now in the last few chapters of Numbers that are referenced in the Talmud. I I like to think that uh, that ten is the specific list that we can, because we can go back and look at them specifically in the Word of God. They've been preserved, those accounts. And so now we come to a merciful response of God. He is going to judge, but He will be merciful as well. We see in verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Oh, that it could be said of us that we had a different spirit. Not some supernatural, um, miraculous, speaking of tongues, different spirit, but a spirit that believes and trusts the promises and the words of God. We have no reason to doubt Him, and yet we do so often. We as a church doubt Him. We as individuals doubt the Lord. And we grumble against Him, not believing that He truly has our best interests in mind. And because of that, we are in great need of repentance as a church. Here at Burton specifically, we have no reason, especially as we've seen time and again specific prayers answered by the Lord in specific ways. Um, In in studying this week, I came across a sermon not on this passage, but on a similar topic about trusting the Lord by Paul Washer, and he had been inspired by Francis Schaeffer to start keeping a, a, a journal of his daily prayers and the accounts of the church and of heart cry ministry. And it's about a 20-minute clip, so I won't uh, quote it all to you, but what it does is it walks through a time in which heart cry ministry was hurting financially, much like Burton has had that experience as well and can sympathize. And in in the account, um, Paul Washer goes day by day 
page by page through this journal and shows times where they had single digits, double digits, uh, $100 to $200 um, in the Heart Cry ministry account. That money was supposed to be used to pay uh, their staff uh, stateside as well as all the missionaries that they had sent out on behalf of Heart Cry to various corners of the world. And these employees had been faithful and had gone months without receiving payment and were living um, on very meager amounts of food and next to nothing financially. And yet they trusted the Lord and Paul Washer and his um, team there trusted the Lord and they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they didn't make known at, at this time the situation. They didn't ask for any extra donations. They didn't let the church um, that Paul Washer was attending know. Uh, they did not let any of the community at large know about these financial hardships, but they simply trusted in the Lord that he, through a miracle, would send them the funds and make his name known to them and to the surrounding areas. And of course, spoiler alert, he did. He was faithful. But in that, Paul Washer and his team were resolved to trust the Lord in spite of the provision. Even if the Lord didn't provide, they were resolved to, to trust that Heart Cry Ministry should be dissolved as a ministry. But the Lord blessed them for their faithfulness. And He blesses here also Caleb and Joshua for their faithfulness. So, as we continue on in these verses, I, I want to call to mind some of this poetic irony in God's judgment. You'll notice uh, this is similar to chapter 11 as well, where we see in verse 25, Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by, way to the Red, by the way to the Red Sea. Of course, if you've been following along with this, you're familiar that the Red Sea is in the opposite direction of Canaan. Where would that lead them back to? It would lead them back to Egypt, which the people had grumbled and longed to go back and die in. And the Lord continues, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where, where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. So the Lord is going to send them back in the direction, as we'll see for 40 years is, is the journey, is the period of this journey, but um, he's going to send them back toward Egypt, which they were longing for, and then he's going to let them rot away and die in the wilderness, which they had also asked for. I, I'm reminded of uh, Romans 1, where we likewise, in, in modern times, wish, we long for sin, and we chase after sin, and we sin deliberately. And at a certain point, the Lord, if He is not gracious, 
will turn us over to that. Turn us over to the passions that we chased after. Repent of those evil desires. Now, not only is there poetic irony in God's judgment here, but in His grace, in God's mercy, He also gives them ironic blessing. Because in verse 31, we see that the little ones, those under the age of 20 um, in the camp, are going to get to inherit the land. The people, of course, if you recall the earlier verses where they were grumbling, said that our wives and our little ones will become a prey. But instead, the Lord says in verse 31 that they, uh, the, the little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. So there's that irony in the blessing. The Lord has given them what they've asked for. He's going to turn them over to suffer and die in the wilderness. But He is going to bless the future generations and allow them to go in, which will, of course, fulfill His promise as well. We see, though, that in verse 33, and I'll call back again to Numbers um, chapter 11, where sin has consequences. It's not going to be an easy journey for the children. They're going to have to wander through the wilderness and suffer for the faithfulness of their fathers uh, until the last of their dead bodies lies in the wilderness. And as I've alluded to, how long is this journey going to take? How long are they going to be kept out of the promised land now because of their unbelief? According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. And so the Lord, if you recall from chapter 13, is calling back that the spies spent 40 days scavenging the land of Canaan before they returned with their report. And now, as a, a year for each day, the people will suffer in the wilderness and die off over a span of 40 years. How scary to know the Lord's displeasure with sin. It should be a humbling thing to read these words here. That you shall know my displeasure. By the grace of God, we don't have to know His displeasure. We have seen the effects of His displeasure on the cross, but if you are in Christ, you do not have to know it. You do not have to bear the wrath of His displeasure for our sin, because Christ has so graciously borne it for us. If you do not know the Lord, however, I hope that this, these words strike a particular chord in your hearts. I hope that you would recognize, because of these accounts, because of these warnings in these chapters, the need to accept the, grace, the gracious offer of Christ in faith, repenting of your sin, unlike the unrepentant, stiff-necked Israelites, repent of your sin and come to accept Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Now, very quickly we'll wrap up the, the remainder here. Um, the Lord 
Judges, the ten spies that did, uh, stirred up all this out- outrage and grumbling and disbelief from their re- fearful report um, in verses 36 and 37. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, died by plague before the Lord. So much like in chapter 11, um, when the Israelites died by the plague, when they were preparing to eat the fish, these ten men have been judged swiftly and died by plague as well. Going on though, of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. And of course, that's important because Joshua will, will go on to be the one that leads the Israelites into the land after this 40 years. So, now that the people have heard these words in verse 39, they mourn greatly. And we think, finally, they've come to their senses, they recognize the severity of the judgment of God, and they're turning back to the obedience that we were um, enjoying reading about in the first ten chapters of Numbers. But of course, that is not the case, as we've already read, that the people rose up in, or they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to that place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Brothers and sisters, it is not repentance to recognize sin. That is part, certainly, you cannot repent apart from recognizing sin, but being aware that you are a sinner is not repenting of being a sinner. These people were falsely repentant here. There was no true repentance. They merely hated the circumstances. They didn't like the outcome. They didn't like the consequences of their sin but they were not repentant of their sin. As Lucas looked at with us last week, Psalm 51 gives a great account of true repentance on behalf of David, where it is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These people were not broken. They they were not mournful over their sin. They were mournful of what is to come, of the promise of judgment. They were fearful finally, for once, of the Lord, as opposed to fearing man. However, they were not repentant. And so we see here that God is not with them anymore because of this. They they come up and they are saying to to the Lord, to Moses, they are going into the land because we've sinned. We realize we should have accepted that. That's way better than going back and dying in Egypt or dying in the wilderness. And so they go and they think that under their own power they can overcome suddenly the Amalekites and the Canaanites, even though that was their fear all along. And Moses tries to warn them, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. And so here we see in in these verses that the victory if it is to be one, will only be the Lord's. 
The battle belongs to the Lord, and He must be with the people in order to deliver them into the land. As Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron have tried to warn them, yet they have turned and suddenly lack fear um, and lack discernment. So, we see that pride indeed comes before the fall. God was not with them, and in verse 45, the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them, even to Ramah. Do we trust the Lord? Do we trust God? Do we believe the promises? Do we believe that Christ is coming again? Do we believe God or do we believe man? Do we rely on our senses or do we trust by faith that which we cannot see? Brothers and sisters, this sin of unbelief leading to these, these outward sins in our lives has been the pattern all along. Since the garden, when Eve was tempted by the serpent to eat of the apple and convinced Adam to do likewise, they thought, oh, surely the Lord would want us to, to be like Him if we eat of this fruit. That would be good. Even though He said not to eat it, he, they disbelieved His righteous commands and promises of, and warnings there. And death was the result. Here, we see the Israelites, they have the promises of God, and yet they are fearful. They are dis- unbelieving, distrusting, and death is the result. Today, do we trust the Lord in spite of all of the chaos and corruption around us, in spite of the world waxing worse and worse day by day, in spite of the pressure put on by society to bend the knee, do we look and do we say, oh, biblical love must not be what is written in Scripture. Biblical love is to confirm someone in their sin. Or do we agree that biblical love is humbly calling a a person out of their sin and loving them in spite, yes, but calling them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If we do not follow biblical commands, death is surely waiting for us. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are humbled, Lord, coming before You, recognizing that we do not believe like we should. Father, help our unbelief. Lord, grant us the grace to trust You even when it would seem impossible. We recognize that with You nothing is. You have provided account after account in Your Word and throughout church history of Your faithful provision. You have provided it In recent history, You have provided it here for this church and we praise You for that. Help us not to forget Your signs, Lord. Help us not to forget Your provision. Help us to trust You even when it would seem that it would be impossible. 
Help us to know that You are faithful. Help us to remember Your perfect character and not presume upon Your grace and continue on in sin, but trust You and obey, walking by faith all of our days. Lord, we ask all this so that You would receive the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.